believe. Amen. Tonight's scripture reading comes from Genesis 2, verses 7 through 9 and 15 through 25. Listen for the word of God. The sovereign God crafted the human from the dust of the humus and breathed into its nostrils the breath of life, and the human became a living soul. And the sovereign God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there placed the human whom God had formed. Out of the ground, the sovereign God may grow every tree, pleasant to the sight and good for food, and the tree of life in the middle of the garden, along with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The sovereign God took the human and settled it in the Garden of Eden to till and tend it. Then the sovereign God commanded the human, from every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it you shall surely die. Then the sovereign God said, it is not good that the human should be alone. I will make it someone to rely on as its partner. Then the sovereign God crafted from the humus every creature of the field, and every bird of the skies, and brought them to the human to see what it would call them. And whatever the human called every living soul, that was its name. The human gave names to all cattle, and to the birds of the air, and to every animal of the field. But for the human, there was not found one to rely on as its partner. The sovereign God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the human, and it slept, then took one of its sides and closed up its place with flesh in place of it. And the sovereign God built the side that had been taken from the human into a woman and brought her to the human. Then the human said, this time, this one is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called a woman, for out of a man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his mother and father and clings to his woman, and they become one flesh. And they were, the two of them, naked, the woman and her man, and they were not ashamed." The word of God. It's really nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. I think you heard a little bit in my bio, but here's a little bit more about me. For those of you who love personality inventories, I know it's like the, we're a little bit over the Myers-Briggs, but I'm an extrovert. I'm an ESTJ at work, so I don't care a ton about feelings, but I have many of them. So at home, I'm an, e an ENFJ. I think I might be an Enneagram 1, if any of you do the Enneagram. If you're into astrology, I'm a Cancer, Leo Ascendant, Moon is Pisces. I don't know what any of that means. <laughs> okay, thank you. That good. It's all good things, so I'm told. Uh, I had to like put in all of my data into a website because I knew some people here would care about that, and then you're going to tell me that it's good. Okay. For those of you who are really into sports, I grew up a Seattle Mariners fan when they were like legitimately terrible. My mom would come home from games and she said she had to pray for them because they were so bad. I was like pretty sure that's not how it works, mom, but that's cool. I went to a smaller state school, did nothing with sports. So when I participate in March Madness brackets and like the spirit of building community, I just choose either the public university or the West Coast University. I have always lost. I do very poorly in March Madness. Uh, smallest town I've lived in had 180 people in Eastern Oregon. Largest city I've lived in was New York, so 8 million. I've lived in the Southeast for 11 years, which horrifies my family. My grandmother was like, don't they have jobs in California? I was like, not this one. <laughs> They'll be fine. 
It is nice in the South. You know, when I moved here, all of those like light flower Easter dresses they make for kids made sense all of a sudden. So I grew up where Easter was still like coat and rain boots season. Lent had snow, cold and rain, nothing was blooming. You all don't understand the suffering of being excited to celebrate Jesus has risen with trumpets and lilies when you haven't seen the sun for a month and a half. So maybe because I come from like this land of gloom, beautiful gloom, exquisite dark gray water, I loved music in the minor key, I live for Lent. I never understood why people would skip all those delicious, sad, dark Lenten services and just come to Easter. I'm also a double PK, so I was like, what is that life you have? It's my favorite liturgical season. I'm like notorious for it. So my colleagues know, and they always like, okay, you can welcome people to Ash Wednesday. I love the darkness. I love it because I think we miss a lot when we let darkness be coded as bad. Darkness, it's good. It's how flower bulbs will eventually bloom. It's where carrots and potatoes and onions grow. Onions like a base flavor, you know. I love how the darkness, like real darkness, lets me see the stars and the planets I got so used to seeing when we lived in rural areas that now disappear with all that city light pollution. I love how my eyes adjust and I can get around so easily in the dark. My spouse maybe does not love this. The dark only becomes dangerous when there's too much light. It messes things up. I also think it's great that Lent asks us to enter the season of meditation and repentance. I think it's okay to be given full permission to explore our sin because there's so much sinfulness. I know it's like a little bit weird to talk about sin sometimes in these settings that tend to be a little more liberal. Some of us grew up in communities that leaned really heavily on sin and shame, and we had to learn that we were wonderfully and beautifully made before we could claim our faith. Maybe we're still figuring out what it means to believe in a loving God because our experiences of faith growing up were primarily about our sin. Or maybe it's because some of us grew up with a highly attuned BS meter. Some of us grew up in traditions that almost never talked about sin, because it's such a downer, yeah? Even though our entire existence is so shaped by it. I mean, have you seen how we elevate the wealthy and shame the exploited? The rates of incarceration, how we're just trashing the earth in the name of profit. All of that is sin. And because I've done a lot around racism and sexism, like anti, um, <laughs> just I understand that could be a lot confusing. I found it like helpful, you know, when we can name these very big systemic sins. In Lent, I love the processes of transformation, how wood or palms are burned and become ash, how we are made out of the stuff of the earth, the idea we return to the stuff of the earth at our end. I love being mortal. We could be a part of this story that will last billions of years when we return to the earth. We do what we can with the time that we have, and then we return to this grander cycle of life. This evening, we can take time to consider our tradition's origin story. How did our ancestors in the faith understand how we came to be? What can we learn from revisiting this text? What can we learn from understanding how the text has been used to hurt and destroy so we don't do it again? 
Where I work, Vanderbilt Divinity School in a small town called Nashville, Tennessee, one of the scholars teaching in the area of the ancient Near East talks about an ethical interpretation. The text should not be used to hurt others. She says, in the face of a world in which so much legislation is used for violence against our bodies, the least biblical interpretation at a progressive divinity school could do is to help instead of to hurt. The divinity school is known for having the oldest program in religion, gender, and sexuality. So something that's pretty important for me to name in this moment is that this text has, is one that has been misinterpreted for centuries to justify the domination and exploitation of women and of creation. This sense of hierarchy, power, and control is something that we and our forebears have inserted into the interpretation of the text. What we have been taught explicitly and implicitly is simply not present. There is no there there. Now I have come to understand that a twisted literalism of this book of the Bible is being used by transphobes to back up their own unscientific and cruel assertions that the only two natural genders are male and female, which is a bit rich considering we're talking about an ancient text that has like some obvious limitations in a conversation about contemporary understandings of gender, sex, identity, and expression. So again, there is no there there. But what is there? So let's dig a little bit. Here we are brought back to the earth. The text does not show a huge distinction between the human and the rest of creation. The human is just another part of creation. The human is made from that good, rich topsoil, right? It's not like the dust. It's like the good stuff. The stuff packed full of nutrients that help tomatoes and azaleas to grow. The same word used for the creation of the human is used for the art of making pottery. There is an intimacy with the land that often escapes our notice. Not only does it seem, according to other verses in the text, that humans were created vegetarian. So as a vegetarian, I take this as my moral superiority, obviously. <laughs> it seems that God breathes life into all that lives, the animals and the earthling alike. It is the beginning, and all of these creatures have agency going forward. They are handcrafted and then shaped by their experiences. Indeed, God responds to human decisions, right? Like God comes, brings the creatures to the earthling, and then lets the earthling make choices. Creation becomes a shared task. The human is meant to care for the plants and tend the garden. This is not like ready-made everything for all time. It's like a starter kit. So then the garden will be formed by rain and sun and nutrients and drainage and tending. God brings the creatures to the human to name. This is so interesting because we often like read something into this, right? We're the one, who, we read hierarchy into who names and what is named. And that's how it works here. So the one who discovers the comet or the star gets to name it, right? The one who locates a fossil or a new species names it. And we're not even going to discuss too much um, about how this isn't the first discovery ever, but the first one who had the resources and the power to claim a discovery to go down in history. You know, like Columbus stumbling onto islands in the Caribbean when he was looking for India. Not so bright. Or Amerigo Vespucci getting credit for discovering a massive landmass clearly already discovered by humans who were like living there. We're accustomed to assuming that 
that, that gives us power, that act of naming. But this is not really supported in the text. The human gives creation names, but this naming is non-hierarchical. Later in the Hebrew Bible, Hagar, enslaved by Abraham and Sarah, she gives God a name. So maybe there's something wrong, actually, with our traditional understanding. The same idea that we've been inserting hierarchy where there was none is important to read about the creation of the woman from the man. So God listened and God believed the human that the animal companions were not quite enough. So God took the side of the human and made a companion. There are no words in the Hebrew for wife and husband. Like marriage doesn't really make sense in a planet with two people. Those are liberties taken by other interpreters. Simply put, there are now two where there was one, and God had to get creative to create each one. Only once there are two are they given this name of man and woman. The term for helper does not imply a hierarchy. The same word is used in other places in the text to refer to God, as in God as the helper of humanity. And these two make something good. They are a whole family unit by themselves. Notice that the text does not say that the woman must bear children to make a family. And they don't have to be married. So this was also a later imposition into the text, into how we have been taught to read it. So where are we? God created a living soul. God created plants and put them in the garden for humanity to tend. And God created a companion. So where there was one, there was now two. And in this story of the birth of creation, we are given the image of a creation handmade by God. I love this image so much. I grew up in a community where I fell asleep under quilts sewn by my grandmother and my great-grandmother, now passed on to my niece and nephew. Church members gifted us with homemade jams and pickles. I used a cheap little loom to weave pot holders and give them away, my handicrafts. I spent hours with embroidery floss and a book making friendship bracelets. God took raw materials and made a craft with God's own hands. All creation is hand-tailored, bespoke, as it were. And God made a little starter kit with that garden for the humans to tend. So maybe we might think of ourselves the way we think of the garden, like we're a starter kit. And then we are shaped from there by nurture, structural advantage or disadvantage, opportunities or lack thereof, by our own growing understanding or the possibilities that others imagine for us. Lent can be an opportunity to continue to grow, to consider which way we want our little leaves to flourish, which is the sunlight and what is the rain. Not all of it is under our control, but maybe some of it is. Maybe I water myself with podcasts from thoughtful leaders. I hang out with people trying to care for creation. Maybe I try to do a little more hiking and a little less obsessing about work. I seek the sunlight from church communities who push towards inclusion because exclusion is a theological problem. Maybe I want to be more aware of how to make my Christianity less anti-Semitic and less invested in patriarchy. Maybe I want to get better at understanding creation and how creation flourishes and my impact on it. But it's not really just about our individual actions, right? It isn't just that we're like carefully handcrafted by God. It's also about the external forces. We are too communal. Our lives are too interdependent. 
And the world is too dangerous to assume that our individual actions are the only shaping forces. I'm Asian American, and tomorrow it will have been a year since six women were murdered outside of Atlanta in a vicious anti-woman, anti-Asian, bad purity theology series of hate crimes. Fringe, transphobic, homophobic, and white supremacist views are showing up in school boards and state legislatures around the country. We do not shape the sun that helps us grow or the water that helps us grow by our own power. We live in this society, which these people and structures and social norms are a part of. Vision boards and self-improvements will eventually hit a wall of stuff that already exists. The starter kit garden is not only impacted by the human's diligence in tending, but by the weather. So what can we do in the face of these structures? Every Lent is a chance to reset, to remember that God turned to the human to ask what the human wanted, and the human was created by God. The human needed a companion, a help, not like someone make me a sandwich when my Zoom calls run into each other, or someone who reminds me I have to get the right name onto my student ID, but someone who will run over and be my battalion reinforcements. And God trusted that the human knew their own needs. We as a community can reset. We can trust those among us who tell us what they need. We can consider the imperative that our work should not cause harm, that we are meant to have someone else to rely upon. We can respond to those outside forces by leaning into what transformation we can do internally and within our communities. We can raise pesky questions. We can speak up when we see harm. We can decide that the structures must not be allowed to continue, and we can choose our relationship to them. Some of us will raise awareness and explore possibilities and protest them from the outside. Some of us will get into the inside and push as hard as we can building allies to pick up the pace of change. We can remember that conscious consumption is not our highest calling. Even demanding change is not our highest calling. Our highest calling is as humans created precious by the hands of God, like a beautiful bit of pottery or the tree just beginning to bloom. We are set here in this possibility garden, making a family as we are, handmade with love to tend and ponder and eat and live until we return to the earth. Lent is permission. Lent is possibility. Lent is nurturing darkness. Lent is creation. Lent is shared power. May it be so.